Perhaps you heard the one about the man who was promoted to vice president at his company. And you know, the promotion sort of went straight to his head, and for weeks he bragged to anyone and everyone how he was now a VP. His bragging came to an abrupt halt one day when his wife, so incredibly embarrassed by his behavior, said, look, Bob, it's not that big a deal. Uh, these days, everyone's a vice president. Why, they even have a vice president of peas down at the supermarket. Somewhat deflated, but not entirely deterred, Bob kind of cautiously rang the, ro the local grocer to find out, is this true? And uh, he asked, uh, could I speak to the president of the peas, please? To which came the reply, pressure frozen. <laughs> Humility is a necessity, but it is not something that always comes naturally. Ted Turner used to say, if I only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. Phyllis Diller had maybe a more realistic assessment. She said, you know what keeps me humble? Mirrors. <laughs> Today we're in the final five verses of 1 Corinthians 1. It is a section where the Apostle Paul will pour cold water over some hot shots. In a church riven with divisions, Paul reminds us that we are not hot shots, but bought sots. What is noble in us is Christ in us. Therefore, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. God does things very differently than you and me. God's people easily forget who we were and whose we are. And so sometimes we need some reminding, and this passage is very helpful in that regard. And so with this in mind, as we survey God's upside-down kingdom found in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 31. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you today, you can use ours. If you reach out to the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you should find 1 Corinthians 1, 26 on page 1211. Page 12. 11. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in Scripture today. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church to speak with a clarity today. Help us to see Your upside-down kingdom. Help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Help us to see ourselves as saved sinners with a promised future, but that all the glory belongs to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Now this letter has a structure. In chapters 1 through 6, Paul responds to disturbing reports by Chloe's people of serious problems in the church, and then for the balance of the letter, he answers questions that came from the Corinthians' leadership about other challenges. But, but the first part of the book deals with Chloe's report. And Chloe's report is two things. There is significant infighting among the saints, and there's seriously, uh, serious immorality within the saints at the church of Corinth. But here in chapter 1, Paul is focusing on the first problem. He puts first things first. And, and, and the problem is there's significant infighting among the saints in the church. That isn't a 21st century problem. It's a forever church problem. Now I want you to notice that Paul spends four chapters tediously, tenaciously tackling this topic. Now friends, there are only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. And so the Holy Spirit of the living God is investing a quarter of this epistle on this one subject. And it raises the question, doesn't it? Why spill so much ink on this problem when the church at Corinth had so many other problems, some of which would seem more significant to us? You have a church in Corinth that the Scriptures tell us is, is desecrating the Lord's Supper, and some are even denying the resurrection. Uh, you have open immorality, and, and you have a, a pandemonium at, at the podium where folks are selfishly using their gifts to cause rifts. There's a lot of problems in the church in Corinth, and yet the Holy Spirit spends a quarter of the epistle on unity. On unity. Why invest four chapters? when there's so much else falling apart in Corinth? And the answer seems to be that God knows that few things can so diminish the witness of a local church than infighting and factionalism. God knows that unity is absolutely essential to His church. Which is why Jesus prayed in Gethsemane for you and me that we would be one. Now, that which God knows, unfortunately, Satan seems quite aware of as well. Satan knows that it's nearly impossible for a local church to extend the warm hand of fellowship to others if, if in that church we're cleansing our fists at our brothers. So Satan stokes their factionalism by trying to entice the Corinthians to be more like their culture and less like their Savior. You see... Endemic in the Greco-Roman society of that age, and different writers speak of this very clearly. In Greco-Roman culture, you were preoccupied with, with patronage and, and, and being a partisan. Who do you fall under? Who's authority? Who's your, your, your leader? Uh, who do you look to? Roman subjects sought out important people to follow. In exchange for your loyalty, that patron would give you security. Politically, economically, socially, there was this pecking order and this exchange. And, and so people established this petty pecking order where they would try to garner recognition and, and differentiation from one another by subscribing to, for instance, a different rhetorician, a different school of philosophy. I'm better than you because I see things correctly. I see things the Stoic way or the hedonist way or whichever way. And, and so it would seem that sadly, the Corinthian Christians were letting their culture instead of their Scripture influence their thinking. 
They took this need that I need to be seen as being somebody by clinging to somebody else's coattails who seemingly is somebody. They took that attitude right back into the church. And this led to quarreling, the Bible says. Each one of them saying, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Now, Paul's solution to their fragmentation was to remind them of their unity in Jesus. Friends, did you know that we are Christians? Because of Christ. So our factions are a distraction, and they should no longer hold attraction to the Christian. Listen again to verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul reminds us that Christ died for us. Not some preacher. Ephesians 4-5 is quite clear. The church has one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so the church ought not splinter into petty factions. Paul derides the, the worldly premise of their culture that was facilitating this wicked rupture within the church. He diagnoses their cancer as stemming from the culture's preoccupation with erudition and elocution. That is, people loved to follow folks who talked pretty. People who spoke authoritatively, but conveniently left off deference to God Almighty. They wanted to follow philosophers and their systems. This guy has all the answers. This political agenda will solve my problems. This is the way forward. And so, to those wise in their own eyes, to those who claim all of the answers apart from their Creator, the one true living God says this. Hear it. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Indeed, what the world sees as wisdom, God twice warns us in Proverbs, well, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. God challenges the world's wicked wisdom and its supposedly wise sources. He comes at it head on in verse 20. God asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those to whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Friend, God's wisdom and man's wisdom are polar opposites. Jews longed for sensation-seeking, great spectacle, and so they demanded we want to see a sign. But the Greeks, they wanted what was, what was rational, what was reasonable, what was intellectually agreeable, so, so they looked for wisdom. But a wisdom that only made sense to them, not necessarily true wisdom that comes from God. 
And here's what God offered to the sign seeker and the wise in his own eyes. God offered Jesus. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified, which proved a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. But friends, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The composition of the Corinthian congregation proves this reality. If you were to sit in Corinth on the Sunday this was read to the church, and you were to look through who was in the pew with you, you would see that God does things in an upside-down sort of way from our thinking. That, that God's wisdom is very different and much better than how we see things. How so? Well, look at verse 26. Verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called when you were saved, when God called you from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ? What were you like when you were saved? Well, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were Harvard professors when you were saved. Not many of you were influential. You didn't have that many followers on Twitter. You didn't get free stuff in Bali because of it. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So no one can boast before the Lord. Now, verse 26 lists the who's who of first century society. There was the educated elite, those who were wise by human standards. There was the powerful elite, the office holders. The Bible calls these people the influential. And there was the established elite, those born with a silver spoon in their mouths. They were the landed gentry. They were the entrenched aristocracy. And the Bible calls them those who were born of noble birth. And those three camps comprised the rich and the famous of the first century. Those were the people that the papers published and the paparazzi pursued. They were the opinion shakers. They were the movers and shakers. They were the, the people society said, those people, they matter. Now, I want you to look at the roles of the Corinthian church. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Did you know that Historically, Christianity spreads most rapidly in the lowest strata of society. In the first century, that's true. And in other places, that's been true. In fact, that was one of the things that held back the higher caste from coming to Christ in India because so many of the lowest caste found freedom in Christ. And they didn't want to be associated with those folks. The early church was looked down on by the rich and the powerful because in the first three centuries of Christianity, it was overwhelmingly populated with slaves and women and others that first century society did not find particularly impressive. I want to tell you that this distribution was not accidental, it was intentional. Paul says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. God called those people. Jesus tells us in John 15, 16, I think we've got it on the wall. 
you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that lasts. From these cast-offs, from these people everyone else looked past, from these inconsequential people, God was going to build His kingdom. Paul, in our passage, makes it clear that God is deliberately choosing the lesser to show that He is greater. Listen again to verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. We ought to look up to God with gratefulness, with thankfulness, with humbleness. No saint ought to pound his chest and think, I am the best. It's a good thing I'm here, or boy, you'd be in trouble. Rather, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Romans 5.8 makes it clear that God is not choosing winners. He is redeeming sinners. For God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us that God saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and His grace. God's purpose in this is that we might be trophies of His grace. That we, the discarded and the discounted, might become a holy people and a chosen race that we would become a kingdom of priests shining like stars in a wicked and depraved generation, pointing people back to the source of our radically changed lives. And friends, what is that source? It is Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God's plan, God's plan, God's plan is to take people often people others count as dross, and remake us through the cross. That's Easter, friends. That's the resurrection, friends. That's the gospel, friends. God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. The moment you receive Christ, one-third of the Trinity dwells in you and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. Why? So that progressively, supernaturally, and undeniably, we are transformed day by day in a myriad of tangible, noticeable ways more and more into the image of Christ as we yield ourselves to the Spirit's work in our hearts. Until those around us ask, what is different about you? I want what you have. And you know what we're left to tell them? I don't have anything but but Jesus. The only change in me is Christ in me. And everything you see that I wish wasn't there is the old me still. I want you to remember that ancient Corinth was a moral sewer. Do you remember that first sermon? Go back and listen again of just how messed up Corinth was. Ancient Corinth was a moral sewer, but God... He scoured that sewer and He saved not the affluent, but the effluent. You can look that up. It's not the best stuff, effluent. I want you to know that the God of Scripture is the God of nature. 
And right now, it's spring. And in our gardens, every single summer, God transforms dirt into daffodils. Go to 42 Welsh Road and you can see that. He, he transforms manure into marigolds and refuse into roses every single summer. And, and, and think about in our minds, in those dark places, in those places that are sealed off and nobody gets to see, and it's just full of darkness, and, and it's unpleasant, and it's yucky. Well, guess what, friends? Under great compression and under the cover of darkness, God transforms common clods of coal into invaluable diamonds that refract His glory in the sun that He has set in the heavens. That's our God. That's the God of nature. God is doing the same thing amongst those Corinthians under great pressure from the culture. In the darkness that was first century Corinth, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And the same is still true today, isn't it? I want you to look around our congregation for a second. Look at these weirdos that you worship with. How many of us are listed in the who's who in America? Most of us can't garner an entry in the who's he. Isn't that just like God? Almighty God who came to us not as some Marvel comic Superman with a fearsome scepter, but rather as the God-man arriving quietly, being born in a man. Isn't that just like God? The living God. The living God who volunteered to die that we might have life. The gracious God who redeems His enemies and sanctifies His stiff-necked people. The beautiful God who permitted His visage to be marred beyond recognition so that by His stripes we might be healed. The God who made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The God whose foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. The God whose weakness is stronger than the strength of men. The God who was crucified, knowing that it would be a scandal to the sign seeker and folly to the intellectual. The God who saves by the folly of the cross. That God. That God takes sinners and makes saints. Do you know Him? That God takes the unholy and makes a holy people. Do you know Him? That God takes selfish people and He makes them into kingdom of priests who serve one another and look out for their neighbor as their brother. Do you know that God? Friends, do you understand God's upside-down kingdom? Do you remember the words of our Savior when He went to preach in His hometown in Nazareth? They had expectations of what He would be like, and He blew them out of the water. Luke 4.16 records it like this. It says, Jesus went to Nazareth where He had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, He went into the synagogue, as was His custom. And He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. He didn't pick it, they gave it to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner 
and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you remember our Lord's Sermon on the Mount? That sermon lays out God's upside-down kingdom about as clearly as any other passage in all the Bible. In a short but powerful sermon, the Lord Jesus takes the world, He takes those the world rejects, and He fills them with newfound respect. In Matthew 5, our Lord preaches this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. This world likes the haughty. God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who humble themselves, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. We like the jolly and the festive. And he says, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Uh, blessed are the meek, you know, those that turn the other cheek. We like those that squash people. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Not persecuted because they're stupid. Persecuted because they're standing for Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In God's upside-down kingdom, those who seek to, to preserve their possessions and positions and personal glories, Jesus says they're going to lose it. But those who seek to lose their life shall find eternal life. Those who take up the cross shall find life in that act of death. In God's upside-down kingdom, you don't enter as a prince only to teach your neighbor as a pauper. No, no, no. In Matthew 20, Jesus says this. Listen, Matthew 20. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the world, lords it over those in their charge. And their high officials exercise authority over them. That means they, they hard-press them. Not so with you. But Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26, not so with you, Christian. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Sometimes we forget how God's upside-down kingdom works. Amen? We think... Wouldn't it be something if so-and-so got saved? That would just fix everything. If only Iron Mike Tyson would become a Christian, then all the tough guys would become gospel-wise. They'd see. If only Jeff Bezos and, and, and Warren Buffett and, and, and Bill Gates would become a Christian, then all those billions would flow in to build the kingdom of God around the world. If only Richard Dawkins and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson would become a Christian, then, then folks would see the intellectual credibility in Christianity. Can I just read you our text again today? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Does that mean God never saves the athletic or the academic, the aristocrat or the fat cat. No, that doesn't mean that at all. Uh, uh, God is willing to save brilliant academics. You have uh, the Oxford and Cambridge lecturer C.S. Lewis who came to faith late in life. Uh, God is willing to save politicians. Uh, William Wilberforce uh, was the driving force in abolishing slavery by sending out the Royal Navy. And he did it because God put it on his heart. God is willing to save athletes. There was Billy Sunday who went from being the center fielder to the Chicago White Sox to being one of the most fervent evangelists of his generation. 
God is willing to save the rationalist and the scientist. Don't believe people that tell you that He can't save people that believe in science. God saved Sir Francis Bacon, and He gave us the scientific method. Kind of the father of modern science, some would say. God saved Robert Boyle, who gave us modern chemistry. God saved Michael Faraday, the famed physicist and discoverer of electromagnetic induction. God saved Joseph Lister, the English surgeon who was instrumental in the development of antiseptics and why we don't die when we're cut open in the hospital. God saved Joseph Kepler, the great astronomer. God saved George Washington Carver, the, the voracious inventor who pretty much figured out everything you can do with a peanut. But most often, God saves those who are not particularly athletic academic or aristocratic. Most often, God seems to take great delight in choosing what is foolish to shame the wise, in choosing what is weak in order to shame the strong. God often brings what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Think about the people God called in the Bible for a moment. God called, God chose impetuous Peter, who always seemed to have his foot in his mouth. God chose Rahab the harlot and Mary Magdalene the demoniac. God chose Abraham the idolater, worshiper of the moon god. God chose Paul the persecutor and David the adulterer. God chose Gideon the coward and Thomas the skeptic. God chose Elijah, though he knew full well that the pressures of ministry would so overwhelm this saint that he would want to commit suicide under a broom tree, or at least ask God to call him home early. God called Jacob the deceiver. God called Esther the compromiser. Well, <laughs> maybe that's what God did back then, but he's all out of that now. You've got to be clean and holy, right, to come to Jesus now. There's a guy named Michael Francis, uh, F-R-A-N-Z-E-S-E. -E. Write it down, F-R-A-N-Z-E-S-E. -E. For the Italians, I got that wrong, sorry. He's a notorious mobster. I look for someone here local that you would know as a bad guy. He's a notorious mobster, and God has made him a preacher. Uh, Franzis was once the underboss of the Colombo crime family, and he spearheaded their multi-million dollar gasoline tax scheme. You can Google it. It was one of the most successful mob operations in this part of the country. But God took him from La Costa Nostra's family and adopted him into his family. If you go to New York City, not that long ago, there was a feared gang in Brooklyn. Before Brooklyn had hipsters and trendy coffee for $19 a sip, they had gangs. And it wasn't fun. And one of the worst gangs was the Mau Mau, named after the Mau Mau Rebellion in Africa, where a whole bunch of people were killed. They picked that name because it signified a certain terror in others. And there was a man named Nicky Cruz, and he was a gang leader. He was the leader of the Mau Maus. And God saved him and made him a preacher. God took a disgraced Watergate figure named Chuck Colson and saved him while he was sitting in prison. God gloriously transformed Chuck Colson into a major Christian leader who ironically founded Prison Fellowship. And that ministry is redeeming prisoners from Rikers Island all the way to San Quentin to Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison in Harare, Zimbabwe. And when I was a missionary in Zimbabwe, we had an entire cohort of prisoners who'd come to faith through prison fellowship who were studying the Bible in Chikarubi Maximum Security Prison. Back in January, an article came across my phone from 
Fox News app, and it ran the story of a former adult film star that God chose. And she's now married to a pastor, and she's now actively sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, telling people about the grace of her Savior. Do you know some of us have messy backgrounds? Satan likes to make us think that somehow we're ineligible for God's grace because of them. But friends, do you know what grace means? It means unmerited favor. You cannot earn it. You can only receive it. That's what grace is. And you know who's eligible for grace? Anybody who needs it. And you know who needs it? You do, just like me. Nobody deserves it. Everybody needs it. Friends, the Bible says Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners, not winners. He came to set captives free. Are you in captivity to something? And you wish you weren't? The Lord Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And so the great physician came to cure the disease of sin through the righteousness of Jesus dying for us. And that's why we stop every Easter and remember it. If you have a messy background, join the club. God's family is full of us. One of the best ways for God's glory to be displayed is by taking messes and transforming them into his bestesses. That's bad grammar, but it's good truth. How many of you know the rapper Lecrae? I'm expecting a lot of elderly Norwegian hands at this point. Okay. Lecrae's story is a messy one. He was an he had an absentee drug addict for a father. Lecrae was tragically molested as a youngster by his babysitter. As a teen, he began to lash out, and the only male influence in his life was his uncle, who introduced him to a life of crime. And one day, he was about to be arrested. Lecrae was going to be arrested for his crimes, and the officer didn't. The officer looked him in the eye and said, I'll tell you what, I won't arrest you, but you've got to read this Bible. You've got to promise me you'll read this Bible. And Lecrae did that. Changed Lecrae's life. He met Jesus. He's now saved. He's now sober. He's now a successful Christian rapper and record producer. And friends, I want to tell you this is beautiful. This is powerful. This is the gospel. The gospel isn't fried chicken and fellowships. It's Jesus dying to release us from that which would destroy us. Friends, this is God's messy grace project, turning worldly sinners into heavenly saints. Have you asked Him to change you? Because God picks us up, and He patiently and progressively will clean us up if we let Him. As His new creatures, the Bible promises we'll receive new natures. And in time, we'll start to live differently. Things happen in us. We'll start to save and give instead of take and hustle. We'll discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We'll go to work on time, every time. We'll begin to lead quiet lives, working with our hands. We'll go to school and raise neat little families in orderly, tidy little communities. And suddenly, surprisingly, we find ourselves respectable. Who knew? And it can become really easy to forget, but by the grace of God go I. And we're tempted to look at those we ought to see with mercy, with stink eyes. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, then you ought to know there's no room for arrogance. 
There's no room for haughtiness. There's no room for a holier-than-thou attitude. For consider your calling, verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're here today, and you need to come to Jesus, and you know it because He's been working on your heart. That's how He works. And you wonder, you know what? Given who I am, would Jesus really take me? Would He really save me? And here's the answer to that. The answer to that is yes and amen. It's a thousand times yes. The only question is, will you ask Jesus to change you? And if you want to do that, you can do that right here and right now. There's a famous hymn that sums up this reality. Saints, sing it because it's so true. It's the only way we can be made right with God. The hymn goes like this. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict and many a doubt, fighting and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to Thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, Thou will receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. Because Thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and you know about Jesus, but it's time that you be radically transformed by Jesus, if you're ready to be made clean, if you're ready to be made new, if you're ready to be set free, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you're ready to have life and life abundantly, then the author of life calls you today and he invites you to put your faith in Jesus the only name under heaven by which you may be saved. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you're ready to have a master you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You can pray with me right here, right now. It's not a magical incantation. It's a sincere desire of your heart. Your words can be expressed like this to Jesus. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. I need to be released from my life of sin and ignominy and transformed into a life of righteousness and victory that has eluded me. And I believe that Jesus, as fully God and fully man, is the only one who ever can bring about that change in me. I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and so I ask Him to be my new head. 
I surrender to His Lordship. Lord Jesus, take me, remake me, and use me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I would love to chat with you and talk to you about your new walk in Christ. If you have questions about Christ, give me a call. Send me an email. There are many here that would love to share with you how God has set them free.